Welcome to the Cybersecurity Weekly Podcast. I'm Jane Lowe, podcasting from Singapore today. And with us today, we are very fortunate to have a guest joining us from the US. And he's Al Geist, who is a Corporate Research Fellow at the Department of Energy, DOE, Oak Ridge National Laboratory. He's also the Chief Technology Officer of the DOE Exascale Computing Project and the Chief Technology Officer of the Leadership Computing Facility and the Chief Scientist for the Computer Science and Mathematics Division. Thank you, Al, for joining us in the podcast today. Well, thank you. Uh, yes, I, have, I wear many hats. Indeed, and uh, you also presented at the uh, the recent conference uh, here in Singapore at the Supercomputing Asia conference, and you talked about the recent Exascale Computing Project at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. So we are very happy that you will be able to share some of the insights that you presented at the uh, conference. So I thought we can kick off by talking about, you know, there was a lot of talk about uh, Fugaku at the conference, the Japanese supercomputer, which was the first to hit the exascale high-performance computing milestone back in June 2020. And now I believe at Oak Ridge, uh, the uh, supercomputer frontier has joined the ranks, and this is causing a lot of excitement at the conference. So I guess the question is, you know, what is causing this excitement? What is exascale supercomputer and what is the significance behind the race to build one? That's a very good question because from even from my talk, one of the things that I tried to point out is that exascale really wasn't a goal to get to. It was just one step in a long process that uh, many big computing centers around the world, the one there in, in Fugaku in Japan, of course, the supercomputer center at, there in Singapore, and here at, at Oak Ridge, uh, we've been putting in place bigger and bigger computers every few years. And so actually in another four, well, it's more like about five years between them, in another five years, we'll put in something even bigger than the exascale computers we put today. But there was a lot of sort of uh, excitement built up about exascale. And here is the real reason why we thought exascale was going to be so um, interesting. And it was really because in a, back in about 2009, there were four key challenges to reach petascale and the community and the researchers that were thinking of trying to build an exascale computer said for these following four reasons that it may not even be possible to build an exascale computer. The first was energy consumption and we may have we'll maybe talk a little bit about that during this talk. One was actually reliability. Would such a large computer be able to stay up long enough to solve really big problems that are needed to, uh, in the world and the grand challenges kinds of problems. Typically these take several hours and sometimes a few days to run. And would the computer be able to stay up that long if it was such a big computer? The other was parallelism. And in my talk at Singapore, I also talked about that is the, the concept that as computers got bigger and bigger, that they may not uh, be able to solve a lot of different kinds of problems. They may become too specialized. And the fourth one was data movement, which was really the observation that the amount of energy it took to do a computation was going down very, very rapidly. But the amount of energy it took to actually move a byte of data 
around inside of your supercomputer was staying pretty constant and maybe only going down a little bit, but it was uh, showing us that in the time frame of an exascale, a lot of the energy would be used just moving data around and maybe you couldn't get as much computation done. So because of these four big challenges, we said, well, is anyone ever going to build an exascale computer? And that launched this whole effort of saying, why is exascale so important? It was because we thought that maybe we had finally got to a point where we were building computers that were so big that it would be impossible. And I think Fugaku and this Frontier supercomputer here in the US are, are showing now that in fact, it is possible to build them. You touch on a few interesting themes, such as the size of the uh, supercomputers getting bigger and bigger. You touch on also reliability, energy consumption. And I think that uh, our audience will be definitely interested to learn about these three aspects. But before we go into those um, in detail, maybe it will be useful for our audience if we could uh, define what we mean by pattern scale computing and access scale computing. So if I could put my sort of... Uh, amateur hat on and try to define it. So petascale is where the computer is capable of performing millions of billions of floating rate operations per second. Is that right? So yes, what we call it is a floating point operations ah, floating. per second. So floating it's point. really saying that a particular kind of calculation, if you wanted to multiply two numbers, two times three, those would be called integer operations because if you wanted to say 1.2 times 3.7, those would be floating point because the the decimal they have decimal places in them. So in the more general case of floating point operations, it's saying that at petascale, you could do 10 with 15 zeros behind it, floating point operations every single second. That's how many, that's how big these computers are. They could do 10 with 15 zeros behind it, floating point operations every single second. And, and that scale is billions of billions, which is 18 is. zeros behind it's a, it. It's a thousand times bigger than that. So to put it in context for our, our audience who has not probably worked with supercomputers before, but do have PlayStations, for example. Um, to, so to put it in context, I understand that the new PlayStation 5, which is arguably the fastest and most advanced game, gaming console out there right now, only uh, performs around 10 teraflops, which is 100,000 times slower than an exascale computer. So 100,000 times. So it could take the entire population with their PlayStations to equal what an exaflop could do every second. That's right. So we need 100,000 PlayStations to perform in parallel. Um, and one yes. of the big challenges that we have is that, of course, and my talk mentioned this as well, is that you can have a whole lot of small computers, but they're not the same as one giant supercomputer because all of those PlayStations would actually need to work together. An easy way to think about it is if I wanted to build a house, it might take me a long time by myself to build a house. If I had 10 people helping me, I might be able to build a house much faster because I can all we can all work together. If I have 100 people helping me, I'm not sure that I could really build a house faster because we would get in each other's way. And these computers have, like you say, 100,000 workers all trying to do things together. 
Right, yes. So we talked a lot about, you know, how advances in semiconductors and processing chips is enabling a lot of these high performance. But there's also a um, a big shift in the programming paradigm that deals with workflow management, congestion control, and queuing to manage the workflows uh, relating to parallel computing as well, isn't it? That is correct. So yeah. for many years, for the, for the past probably 20 years, we've really worked on how do you get all of those uh, processors to work together. But now we're actually running into even bigger problems, which is the workflows and how can you get all the different parts of your problem um, solved at the, not at the same time, but in a coordinated way. So there's a very complex sort of dance that goes on in the computer so that each of the different parts of the calculation can all be going on at the same time. And you also touch on reliability, right? So the supercomputers is not just about speed, but it's also about being able to perform uh, computations that derive results as accurately and as reliably as possible. Because if I think about one application, say, for example, earthquake prediction, you want to be able to, um, to help predict when and where the next fault slip will happen, and you want to be able to take in these huge volumes of observations, measurements, assumptions, and, and then output a data that is, you know, as quickly as possible, but also it gives uh, decision makers confidence that they can go out and say, okay, the earthquake may happen quite soon. So can you tell us a bit more about um, how supercomputers are benchmarked against these criteria aside from speed? Yeah, so there's actually two really important aspects to reliability, and you've, you've hit on to the first one, which is that you're going to do a really big calculation and you're going to do billions of computations. How do you know when you get to the end that the answer is actually correct? And so one of the big problems that we have when we're solving such large uh, global challenges with these supercomputers is how do we make sure that the calculations that we've done are actually the correct ones. And typically we do that by making similar runs, like in your case of the earthquake calculation. So it was like if the earthquake happened here and it was about this magnitude, what would be the effects on the city? And what buildings might fall down? Which buildings would be able to withstand it? How many people might be displaced? Uh, okay, but what if we move the earthquake over uh, 50 miles closer to the coast? and we'll do the calculation again. And I get a really wildly different answer. I will say, oh, you know, even the first calculation may not be right because they aren't consistent with each other. So I will run many different calculations to find out if I have reliability or confidence that the answer is actually correct. There's a second really important part about reliability for the supercomputer, and that is that there are just so many pieces, so many CPU chips inside of the computer that the probability of one of them failing is actually quite high. So uh, even though any one of the components has a lifetime very similar to uh, say a laptop or a, a cell phone where you really don't see any failures in its five-year lifetime. But if you have a million of these things around, what are the chances that one of them fails in a shorter period of time than that turns out to be fairly high. And the calculations that we've done for machines like Fugaku or for Frontier are such that if the machine stays up for 
six hours or a full day without something failing, uh, we actually feel like we've done really well. What it is forced the vendors to do is to write all of their software and all of their hardware to be very agile so that when things do fail, it will just keep working with all the rest of the computer that's still around. You talked about many chips in the supercomputer and you mentioned millions. And earlier, you also pointed out the size of a supercomputer and how that was one of the uh, challenges. Um, so looking at some of the photographs, it, it, a supercomputing center looks, looks kind of like a data center, thousands of you know compute nodes organized into cabinets. So you have buildings that are housing these cabinets. And I believe that for Frontier, you have to significantly refit the buildings that previously housed your previous supercomputer, which is Titan, I believe, right? To that accommodate the, the extra physical load and also, you know, the extra... Uh, energy demand. So can you tell us about this uh, refitting exercise? It sounds quite interesting. Yes, it was um, It was one of the big things that we did over the last uh, three and a half years as we were preparing our data center for Frontier to arrive from the vendor. The vendor was busy designing and building it over those three or four years while we were busy trying to up update our data center. What were some of the big things we had to do? Well, one was we had to put in enough uh, electricity, enough power to be able to power an exascale computer. One of the big challenges I mentioned was energy consumption and the calculations back in 2009 said that an exascale computer could consume as much as a gigawatt of electricity, but they didn't think that that was gonna happen. They thought that maybe it would consume on the order of 150 to 200 megawatts of power. This is about the amount of energy that powers a, a small city. And so we had to do a lot of, of upgrades to be able to run that much power into the computer room. And one of the interesting facts for your listeners is that you see a lot of times these very high voltage power lines running out near the, the city streets. We actually run those same 15,000 volt lines right into our building. It actually runs right underneath the floor of my um, office here at Oak Ridge mm -hmm. National Labs and into our computer room, 15,000 volt lines. So wow. another big thing that we did was trying, we found out that these computer cabinets for Frontier uh, weigh 8,000 pounds or uh, 3,600 kilograms. And so they were so heavy that our original computer room floor and most computer room floors simply can't hold that much weight. So we actually had to tear all of the computer room floor out. We have about a 20,000 square foot computer room. And for your readers, you think about the size of your home and then think about how big 20,000 square feet is. We replaced all of the floor of that computer room with much stronger flooring to be able to put these very heavy cabinets in there. And uh, you talked about energy efficiency and how this uh, is also a step up from the previous uh, generation of supercomputer. And I believe this has got to do with some new cooling infrastructure that you have in place as well that uh, the new pumps uh, has the ability to move, for example, 10,000 gallons of water per minute. So here's an interesting thing for your listeners is that 
we talk about how much energy the supercomputer consumes. And in the case of Frontier, it's a two exaflop computer and it consumes 29 megawatts of electricity. That is the amount of energy it takes to run the computer and the computer heats up from that energy. So we actually have to cool the data center back down. And the question always becomes for all the data centers around the world, how much more electricity does it take to cool it back down? And back 20 years ago, 15 years ago, it would take about 30% of the amount of energy you put into the building to cool it back down by using basically air conditioners. That's right. What we've been able to do with, at the Oak Ridge Data Center, I had mentioned in my talk that the, the PUE, which just stands for the Efficient Utilization of Energy, is 1.03, which really means that it only takes about 3% additional energy for us to cool down the 29 megawatts that goes into our computer center. And one of the big ways that we were able to do that is we worked with the vendor to have them design the computer so that it actually uses warm water, not cold water, to try to cool it back down. Right, that's an interesting concept. It's quite uh, not very instinctive, is it? Well, not. It's not. not. In fact, depending on where your supercomputer center is in the world, um, meaning how hot does it get? How much can you chill the water simply by using the outside air without having to run air conditioners? And what we've done with Frontier is we run a pump that sprays water in the air, and as as it evaporates, it cools down and we take that cool water and just run it back into the computer. We don't actually have to run a refrigeration or an air conditioner type system to get the water much colder. That's why it takes a little energy. I think that's quite a timely sort of uh, innovation given the current uh, climate of high energy costs that we are all experiencing at the moment. It is, very so much was- so. And that was another big thing with, with Frontier was that we worked very hard to reduce the amount of energy it took to actually run an exascale computer. As I mentioned earlier in our podcast here, the projection was it would take 150 megawatts or maybe even as much as 200 megawatts to run an exascale size supercomputer. And in fact, as I mentioned, Frontier only takes 29 for two exaflops. Mm. So it's only using about 14 and a half megawatts Mm. per exaflop. So it's, again, because of climate change and stuff, we are always trying to find the best, most energy efficient way to, um, to help the environment and still get all of our computations done. So uh, we touch on size, reliability, energy consumption, and I think our audience, given that you know this is a cybersecurity podcast, would be interested to know the security-related sort of measures that you have in place for the supercomputing center, given that some of the applications you run has national security implications. So can you briefly share with us some of the security sort of measures that you have for Frontier? Certainly, Um, and so let me step back just a minute and just talk about um, our data center in general, then I'll talk about Frontier in particular, but anytime you have a very large data center like ours that has some 
in some sense, a target, a cyber target of saying, oh, we were able to break into the biggest supercomputer in the USA, that we get lots of attacks uh, on the order of maybe a million or so per day where people all around the world are trying oh. to break into our data center. And so because of that, and that's been going on for years, because we've we've had a whole string every five years, we have one of the biggest computers in the world uh, in our data center. So we have a large number of people always trying to break into our system. And there, therefore, for many years, we have been working on trying to tighten down our, our security more and more and more. So the way that we deal with that it's always complicated for a large data center because we have users from all around the world. And so we can't just wall ourselves off from the rest of the users in the internet. People from the internet have to have some way to get in. But what we do is we require two-factor authentication to all of our users remotely, you know, have fobs that we supply to them for two-factor authentication. So we keep very tight control in that way for people trying to log in. From a cybersecurity standpoint, uh, even our own system administrators cannot administer our supercomputer from outside the building that the computer is in. So you have to physically be there. And then on there's another aspect, of course, which is all the data that gets generated in the computations. And so we actually have data enclaves set up so that all of the user's data get funneled out into particular areas that are isolated from each other so that one user can't see data generated by other users. And um, we keep all of that, again, locked down from a cyber uh, standpoint by having all these different enclaves. So I, I think given the size of the supercomputing center, I would imagine that the physical uh, security aspect is also very, very significant in terms of who is allowed access into the center. That is correct. In fact, um, I think it's limited to probably only about 30 or 40 people in the world that actually get physical access to the, the center. Wow. And in fact, I was just there this morning and someone was joking that even I didn't have access to it. <laughs> right, so it's not open to visitors like myself then. So we have a, a visitor's observation deck for uh, being able to see the entire Frontier computer mm. from that observation deck. Mm -hmm. But actually going down and, and touching the computer is fairly unique. Only like if um, the Minister of Technology, like who spoke at the uh, Singapore Supercomputing Asia this year, you know, if he came to visit, I am sure that arrangements would be made for him to be escorted into the room so that he could go and physically see or or touch the machine. But the rest of us regular visitors, we would just be able to uh, look at it through the observation windows. All right. Okay. So if I want to visit, I should accompany the minister and perhaps I can tag along. Absolutely. <laughs> what a great idea. <laughs> All right. Okay. Right. Uh, yes. Uh, so, Al, thank you for your time today. But before we go, if I may just ask you one last question. Uh, sure. You know. So what is next in terms of supercomputers? Because you mentioned earlier, uh, or we talked about very briefly earlier, you know, Titan, right? Um, that was the number one, I guess, back in early 2010, 2011. That's and then correct. that was 
that was eclipsed by Summit, right? Um, which was your other supercomputer before Frontier came along. Um, so that happened, what, in six, seven years' time, right? So every sort of, um, I would say, half a decade or a decade, is, we see these uh, strides in performance because we pack more and more computing power into smaller and smaller spaces. But I think all of us, you know, talk about or allude to Moore's law in some ways. We will see the acceleration in performance start to slow down. So we can't get transistors any smaller, I guess. So what is next after, you know, this uh, exascale computer era? Are we talking about quantum computers or? So what we really see is probably not so much quantum computers. They are still, gosh, 20 or 30 years away, probably. Uh, I mean, people are building them today, but they are quite small in terms of the number of qubits compared to what it takes to really solve really big problems or interesting problems. What What is going to happen in probably the next generation, the next, say, half a decade, is we will see the expansion of the supercomputers to be solving much more uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence type of problems. So they will be geared and the chips inside of them will be geared much more towards that data analytics and AI and they would still be able to do large numbers of computations. But like you say, that is slowing down um, in terms of the big leap forward in the amount of computations in the traditional way. But we will see them start to, to accelerate or be much more capable of doing artificial intelligence or machine learning types of problems. And we will see the scientists that are solving these big grand challenges start to shift the way their algorithms are designed so that they can take advantage of this AI to, to be able to solve their problems faster, even though the computations themselves didn't get faster. So it's a new way of thinking about how to program the problem. Exactly. That is exactly what we're seeing. So instead of doing, um, let's see, what would be a good example? Um, we have a lot of self-driving cars or assisted driving cars and they use artificial intelligence rather than trying to solve all the calculations for how much should i press on the accelerator and how much should i turn the wheel to go around this corner they use machine learning algorithms that they teach the computer inside your car how to do that without actually having to do the calculations and so with these big supercomputers of the future, what we'll be doing is the scientists will be, in some sense, teaching supercomputers of the future. They'll be teaching those supercomputers, well, to solve this earthquake problem, I need to look at these previous data from earthquakes and notice how it kind of works. Um, think of it as intuition, your AI, to get closer to the answer before we do the rest of the calculation. So computers will become uh, smarter. Basically. Yes, one That's of the right. things that we joked about when we first put uh, the Summit supercomputer in here in uh, 2018 uh, was to say, oh, it is the smartest supercomputer in the world, not the most powerful supercomputer. We like to joke that it was the smartest one. That's a misnomer. It's, you know, you wouldn't necessarily say that a, a, any particular computer is smarter than another, but we were saying that because 
one of the things that um, that Summit did is NVIDIA GPUs are, are well known around the world as being very good for doing uh, machine learning and AI types of problems. And the Summit supercomputer has over 40,000 of these NVIDIA GPUs inside of it. So it actually is a very formidable AI computational engine if you wanted to use it that way. So it seems like that we still are a long way uh, from uh, all this talk about quantum computer overtaking the current world of semiconductors. The way that we program and code will become smarter, algorithms will become more efficient. So we'll still have a, a long, uh, what you call, life left when it comes to supercomputer. Yeah, I think we will have at least another couple of generations. One one generation will be the reduction in, in transistors at least a couple more times uh, from seven nanometers, which is common today, five nanometers, which is um, kind of state of the art, down to maybe two, two to three nanometers will be one generation. And then the other will be a generation where we also look at chips that are specifically designed to, to solve AI types of problems, and they will be blended together with this um, smaller transistor size so that we can do calculations, but also do these other kinds of problems. So when is the next uh, faster supercomputer that will um, eclipse our frontier in That's the US? That's a good question. <laughs> so um, I, I'm not sure, uh, partly because I think that the Chinese have so, at least one or maybe even two really big supercomputers that they haven't really told us about. So I don't really know for sure if they will announce something that maybe it will eclipse Frontier, but certainly in the US, uh, the next big computer that will eclipse um, Frontier will be a computer called El Capitan, which is going to be placed at a location called Los uh, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and they are already in the process of designing that computer. It, it won't arrive for several years now, but when it finally arrives, it will be bigger than Frontier. So the next podcast that I will have with you to talk about the next uh, supercomputer after Frontier at Oak Ridge will probably happen after 2023 then. It should, we've actually already started planning for that and it's, uh, we're planning for it in 2026 to be wow. put on the floor. All right, okay, so I'll talk to you in 2026 then. All right, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Al, thank you for your time. You're welcome.